Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34. Today we are speaking with David Kim, who is challenging Jimmy Gomez from the left in CD34. Welcome, David. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Absolutely. So first of all, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background. You're an activist. You're also an attorney. You have a law degree from UC Berkeley. What, what were the reasons that you decided to run for Congress? What were your main motivations? Yeah, so I graduated from UC Berkeley for college, and then I went to um, Yeshiva University in New York for law school. Uh, right out of law school, I started working in the Public Integrity Division at the DA's office, and then after that, I was a litigator for plaintiffs in labor and employment cases. And then after that, I saw a need for uh, attorneys in the entertainment industry because a lot of my friends that were writers, directors, artists, actors, they were all they couldn't afford expensive attorneys, but yet they were getting very weird deals and contracts being signed without looking that over, or they would pay $10,000 retainers, $5,000 retainers to their attorneys and not be able to call them because they would be afraid that they would be charged an arm and a leg. And so they, they ended up coming to, to me for a lot of legal help. And so I was providing all of that. And I thought, you know what, something needs to change in the legal industry for entertainment. So then I um, went and got the experience that I could. I worked a lot of free paid attorney jobs because in order to get your foot in the door, that's what you have to do. And at a time when I graduated, the legal economy was really bad. And yeah. so I remember working as an attorney for free during the day full time and then driving for Lyft and Uber at night and getting that experience that I needed. And uh, I opened up the HollywoodLawyer.com in October 2014, and it was to provide affordable legal services to people who were creatives and not have to pay several thousand dollars just to get a two-page contract reviewed so right, let's right. say like tina desiree like if you if somebody was like hey let's make a let's turn you into primetime tv show and gave you a contract and deal all of a sudden and they're expecting you to sign it or they're going to move on to the next person you need an attorney to look at that contract just like that but you don't want to pay ten thousand dollars as well so given that in mind you could go ahead and contact the Hollywood lawyer, get a contract review within 48 hours, wow. with six hours. And so for, for very expectable, affordable fees. And so um, that's what I did. And, and during my years as an attorney, I did the whole eight to nine years of a two to three job daily grind and hustle where I had to work temp jobs. In addition to building my own practice, I had to do drive for Lyft and Uber. In addition to building my practice, I had to go wait tables in addition to building up my practice. And so it came to this deep realization where it was like, oh my gosh, life isn't supposed to be this tough. And I'm supposed to be one of the very fortunate ones and I'm thankful for that. But then how about everyone else? Like what's going on? And so I actually missed the 2016 train with Bernie and all of that because I was so busy trying to make ends meet, to be honest. And, and it wasn't until 2018 that Kenneth Mejia, who ran for the same position and spot two years ago, that he sort of let me out of my birdcage, where it was this deeper sense of like, holy shit, we're being fucked right now. Like, yeah. in, in all ways possible, like with corporate interests, with the government, with all this empty lip service and promises when they're not even able to like live those up because their donors won't let them. And it was it was just this deeper realization of, oh my gosh, what are we doing? And so it's it's been in the past 
few years that I've been in the local neighborhood council with Kenneth Mejia's campaign with organizing that that I just decided you know what now's the time to run I'm an I'm an immigration attorney right now but um, now's the time to run because we need more people from different walks of life running for office it's not it's not these career politicians that know what's best they're not able to connect with the suffering or the financial hardship or distress that people are undergoing. What's up with that? And so it's because of that urgency, that desperateness. Um, we're the 10th poorest congressional district in the nation where in the sense of, hey, like, let's really, if we're arguably one of the most progressive districts in the nation, let's show that. Why do we keep on electing these career politicians into office? He's already had his chance in office for seven, eight years, including his state assembly. And like, we haven't seen um, anything improve in our district. We have over 40,000 brothers and sisters living unhoused. Why are we reelecting somebody um, and expecting different results? And so with that, that's, that's why I'm running. And that's why, that's what our campaign's about, about financial freedom and bringing that to everyone. And then also the injustices with our communities being oppressed domestically and foreign well, with policing, whether it be domestic or abroad. And imagine all of that, if we could end that and, and really, make the efforts towards making peace, make the efforts towards caring for our people, whatever we do here is reflected abroad and vice versa, then that's how we start change if we start caring for our people first. Um, but I don't know why that's such a tough message for DC and, and that's why a lot of us are ready. Well, part of the reason it's a tough message, I think, David, is that even though we are, I, you use the word arguably progressed, and I think arguably is arguably has carried a lot of weight there for a reason. I, you know, Los Angeles has massive income inequality because the Democratic Party here has sort of fallen sway to real estate development money and a whole host of other folks that don't, they, they see themselves as progressives because they see themselves as fighting against racism, fighting against xenophobia, fighting against sexism, these sort of social policies, right? But when you look at what they support financially, they have no problem with income inequality. Like that's fine with them. They have sort of this laissez-faire, um, ideology when it comes to finance. And I think that's what's at, what's the core of the problem is. And I think it needs to be challenged. And I think um, you're doing a good job of doing that. Let's talk, in fact, about Andrew Yang. I know Andrew Yang has endorsed you. Uh, you know, one of the things that I'm grateful for Andrew for is bringing the conversation about UBI to the, to the uh, stage because people weren't really discussing that so much. And this is an idea that's been around since Milton Friedman and, and also MLK talked about it, right? more maybe of this negative tax rate idea, but it's basically the same concept. So your UBI though, after looking at your policy, seems to be a little bit more left than Andrew's is, which I, I agree with what you're saying here. So Andrew had this idea that, because he's a technocrat, I think, uh, he comes from Silicon Valley, he comes from venture capitalist background, and you know this is something that even Elon Musk has spoken about. These guys sort of see as a more efficient way of redistributing some of the massive income inequality Fair enough, but I think that it's important that we don't necessarily use that to replace existing social programs and like Elon Musk wants to get rid of food stamps. He wants to, like he doesn't see this as doing anything about making less income inequality. He sees it more about replacing inefficient government, right? So two different arguments we had. I don't know that Andrew would go that far. I think Andrew has his head on straight in a lot of these areas and he was willing to listen to folks that have that criticism. So he has credit for, for that. Um, but I like that yours is to the left of that, that you're not looking to necessarily replace something, but to add income because people are really hurting, especially in major cities. And it's not just Los Angeles. You know, 82% of the new wealth last year went to the 1%. This is not 
this is not tenable. So walk us through um, how you got the Andrew Yang endorsement and then also your thoughts on the differences in the UBI area. Yeah, um, well with Andrew, I, I remember first learning about him, it was pre-Joe Rogan and I had stumbled upon his Instagram and thought, oh, uh, this this man's running for a president. I've never heard of him. And he's running on, what what, what is basic income? And then I went down a rabbit hole, uh, a very long rabbit hole. And then after coming out of the rabbit hole, I thought, wow, this is a game changer. This is not, not that it's a one solution to everything because it's not. Um, and we have to be very honest about that. But it is one of the flagship things that we could be doing for our people right now because because we're going up against years and years of uh, oligarchy that is has just been unrestrained and years of corporate interests and and powers so to be we need to try in every avenue possible for pushing for change for the people and so for for me it means it means universal basic income, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, a homes guarantee, taking money out of politics, because these are very people-focused policies and issues. And so for the government, for elected officials, their main duty is to be representatives of the people and to manifest the will and, and represent the will of the people and to take care of their needs if it's of the people, for the people, by the people. And if they're not doing that, what kind of government do we have in elected officials? So with universal basic income, when, and when Andrew brought that up, that's what immediately attracted, my, um, attracted me to this platform because I noticed, wow, this guy is really about the people whether it be with um, policies like democracy dollars or or humanity human uh, humanity first or human centered economy, this person is really really knows what it's like to uh, to in in his communities and the in the ones that he's been in in terms of the inequities that are there. And then in addition to what he was preaching about with automation and all of that, I thought you know what let's 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 do this. And I went down the Andrew Yang rabbit hole. Fast forwarding, I met him on October 1st uh, during my primary cycle, and I was able to talk with him. Um, the moment he saw me, he said, oh, you're that LA UBI guy. And I was like, yes, that's me. So he had heard about me. And then kind of, um, and then fast forwarding about what, six, seven months later, I get his endorsement. And so his endorsement actually started to open the doors for a lot of other endorsements. After that, we got Marianne Williamson's, we got Our Revolution LA, we got Sunrise Movement LA, we got Riot Nights, we got um, a bunch of other organizations and they're still coming in. But it was able to just give us national attention because I feel Los Angeles has been neglected and ignored for so long because for our situation where we have so many of our people living unhoused and so many people experiencing homelessness, like. It's not just a local thing anymore when the local people are corrupt in, in, in and of itself. And we need somebody to step in to say, hey, you guys can't be doing this anymore. And, and, and really bring, and bring a spotlight to that. And, and for us, that means federal representatives like our congressman. Why isn't that as soon as he got into office, he wasn't talking about the financial distress of our district? Why wasn't he talking about the per capita incomes or their lack of housing um, completely or affordable housing? And so with the UBI, what it does for some parts of our district, the per capita income ranges from 15000 to 25000 A UBI, and this is pre-COVID, um, I had championed $1,000 a month. Um, a UBI of $12,000 a month? 
I mean, twelve thousand dollars a year. Imagine what that that almost almost doubles people's income. And it allows them to have some breathing room, some freedom to not work those two to three jobs to make ends meet, to always struggle. And then year after year, realizing that there's still no light at the end of the tunnel and realizing that there's something wrong with them when it's not, when it's something systemically deep. And so that's what Andrew recognized, the deep-rooted chronic economic anxiety that our people wake up in every day. That's what Marianne realized. That's what Bernie realized. That's what all of these different um, visionaries realized where we can't continue to, towards this path because then our people will be living in poverty. But And so it's this idea of allowing people, giving people a dividend straight into the hands of our people because they're the ones who are contributing to the government. Our people are the ones who are the economy. Los Angeles was built on the labor of our brown brothers and sisters. Why aren't we providing them also uh, stimulus check and relief during these times? Why they've been paying into the system like, that's taxation without representation is, is tyranny. Why hasn't our representative talked about that or uh, uh, and while, while he's been in office? So kind of with these things, UBI will bring so much relief. UBI to me represents money, represents cash, represents freedom, represents power, being given back to the people, cutting out all the bureaucratic tape, cutting all out all the inefficiencies. Um, but like it would bring so much life, but the government is afraid to give the people too much power, to give them too much freedom. And, and, and now it's a time where we need to catch that and realize it and really bring it to the surface. So the UBI that um, we're advocating for is one that stacks upon on top of your benefits. Um, so for us, I don't think it makes sense that it should replace your SSI because it's a greater amount because if that happens, then your SSI qualifications is what allows you to qualify for other benefits as well. And then you take those away and then you're suddenly left with collectively much less as well. So it's not, so, so it would, we can't, we can't implement it where um, people's resources and, 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 and safety nets are being taken away from them, we need to build upon what we have um, because even what we have right now is not enough. And, and for me, yes, I love the automation um, idea and reasons for that. But for me, we've been in a 40-year wage stagnation, ever-increasing widening wealth gap, and something needs to be done about this. And this is one of the ways to start doing that. Am I supportive of a federal jobs guarantee? Yes, I am. But like, am I supportive of a UBI to a point where people don't have to work? Yes, but are we, how soon are we gonna get there? Until we get to this point, we need to push on all avenues and fronts, whether it be for a Medicare for all, homes guarantee. And so why does it have to be mutually exclusive when the people are dying right now? Um, and I, I think that's the urgency that our elected officials don't have. No, you know what, Davey, you're right on that. I don't understand why some folks are saying these two things are mutually exclusive. I do, absolutely do not think they are. I think you can be behind a jobs guarantee and a UBI at the same time. I have no idea who started this idea that that couldn't be the case. I agree with you. Not mutually exclusive. And I think regardless, I, the, the point of a UBI isn't for people to quit their jobs and not work and live off of that because it's not enough money to do so. Mm -hmm. The point exactly. is to do something about the rabid income inequality. That's the point, right? So $1,000 a month, I could not pay my mortgage on that. That's not going to happen. Would it make a huge difference in my quality of life? Yes. Would it help the economy? Of course it would because we're two-thirds driven by consumption. Right now, people are consuming because they don't have the money to consume it. So really, all of these folks that 
want to save capitalism should really be looking at supporting a UBI because right now they're just giving money to the banksters, they're giving money to, to corporations, they're giving money to the platonomy. And none of those folks are using that money in a way that benefits the overall economy. Most of them are just hoarding wealth. You know, I mean, do they need 40 yachts while somebody is in a tent in L.A.? This doesn't make any sense. No. Yeah. And we've seen the biggest transfers of wealth during this pandemic <laughs> right before our eyes. And so when you say blatant, it's like, yeah, right before our eyes. And I don't know what our elected officials are doing. And yeah. they're just like, la -di -da -di -da, like, we're trying to fight for you. It's like, right. really? They're not. Um, yeah. They're not. You know, the problem that I've seen uh, just grow worse inside the Democratic Party is that they've been trying to serve two masters for a long time. They want to still pretend that they're serving the working classes, and they're really not at this point. And they also want to serve their donor class, their corporate, you know, half of the DNC membership or close to half of it is, is lobbyists. I mean, it is so corrupt at this point. And you cannot... You cannot look out for both of these folks at the same time. It's impossible because they, they are standing against each other in this fight, right? These yeah. guys want to take all the money. They want to keep extracting the wealth. They don't care about the poverty. And the unfortunate reality is they still call themselves progressives only because they look at social issues. And mm -hmm. even there, I could say they fall short at this point. So mm -hmm. I think absolute change is going to have to come from the people. I think you're right. And I think it starts with more local elections. I don't think the presidential election matters as much as people think it does. Um, I think what we're talking about is far more important. Um, so what would you say on that note, what would you say your big differences are with Jimmy Gomez? You know, Jimmy Gomez has run as a progressive. Um, he, he was a big Bernie supporter. So a lot of people would make the case that he's not as bad as some of these other folks. He's not, he's not a total neoliberal like Nancy Pelosi is. What do you say to those folks? Yeah, um, well, if we were in a situation where maybe it was 10, 15 years ago and Jimmy ran for office, maybe back then the climate might have been good and, and it, it would be a safe bet to perhaps, based on the politics and climate back then, uh, because no one really talked about uh, income wage stagnation and the disparities that are happening now. But, but as the people are getting smarter and as the electorate is getting smarter, it's like, no, you'll you'll need to sharpen up where you stand on things. You'll need to actually take a firm stance on positions. And so even if it's not uh, going as berserk as Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> even if it's not to that point, like if you're not standing up, if you're not taking a firm stance or position for the people, then then you're not standing or fighting for anything. And why would we have you in office then when the people are dying and desperate and hurting right now? And so although, although, and I know that he, um, he has a, a background with labor unions, but what does that mean when labor union power has still decreased, when labor unions haven't really grown that much, when, when they're still struggling or, or have corrupt leaders and it's become its own complex industrial complex in a way so but and then with that but it's it's like i think it's this old mentality and old age where it's that we're still stuck in when we're not realizing the the financial numbers that the the statistics the people that are living around us what we see our unhoused communities and realizing oh i should take a stance for this because i have a spine that i should be doing and so for, for you to support a $100 billion rent relief fund, that's great. That's fine. But 
to think about doing that during a pandemic where you're going to have tenants prove that they're trying to, that they need money to pay for rent and put food on the table. And that money just goes to the landlords. And I'm not saying that all landlords are bad, but, but in the, in the sense of like, we really need to be more conscious in our decision-making and the policies that we bring and the stances that we take. So rather than supporting a hundred billion dollar rent relief fund, doesn't a rent and mortgage cancellation, doesn't that sound more practical and helpful for our people right now? Why aren't you co-sponsoring Representative Ilhan Omar's bill for that? Why aren't you sponsoring and, and really fighting for monthly cash relief right now? Why aren't you standing up for these things? And so I think, and that's not just unique to this pandemic, it's reflective of his time in office where He's basically doing a little good things here and there, but where has our district gone? Our district has gone deeper in its financial districts. Like, yes, you're doing that one, one, creating that national day of whatever over here, but what about those where we used to have under 40,000 living unhoused and now the number's over 45,000? What are we doing about that? And that's what we need for LA. And so we need somebody who's able to take bold stances to take firm stances first of all and then to take bold action and to really fight for it and so what i really believe is yes we've talked about medicare for all and we need to keep on pushing for it we need to keep on pushing for green new deal we need to now ubi is on the discussion table we need to keep on pushing for that the next thing is housing is homes guarantee the biggest part of our income that we spend on is rent and the fact that when Biden came out with his task forces and said, oh, these are the task committees, there was nothing on housing. And it's like, are you serious? Do you really think you're connected to the people right now? Like, no. And so it's kind of with this deeper realization where um, it's, it's like, yo, like we, we get that you're really for the social values, but, but we need something bigger and bigger and actually more impactful, something that affects our own daily lives. And that's our financial ability and ability to sustain ourselves, to take care of ourselves. And so for us to reelect him just for another two years and then expect him to suddenly step up doesn't really make sense either. And so at a time like this, we really need uh, a variety of thoughts, a variety of uh, kind of new ideas and actually people who can stand up for what they believe in, what their communities believe in. And, and given my experience as an attorney, given my experience of really trucking it through that eight to nine year grind of two to three jobs and, and helping people in the community and my clients, like I know how much you have to be persistent and I don't see that persistence at all in Congress for the people right now. No, and you're right. I mean, look, David, put it, think about it this way. You have a degree. Uh, I also have a graduate degree in philosophy, not, not in law, but you and I are supposed to be in this group of folks that are hella better off than everybody else because of our college education, right? Mm -hmm. I went to UC Irvine, you went to UC Berkeley. So we went, I mean, solid schools, right? But here you are telling me you had to work three jobs in order to get by after you graduated. So there, this idea of upward mobility based on education is just totally hogwash, I think, at this point. I was fortunate enough to graduate back in the, with my undergrad degree in the mid-90s, so we hadn't seen these astronomical uh, tuition hikes yet at the UC system. Uh, when I graduated, well, they were starting to get crazy, but they're not, not as crazy as they are now. When I was a freshman, it was like 450, 500 bucks a quarter, very, very reasonable. Oh. 
but by the time I graduated, it was up to like 2,200. So mm -hmm. I mean, it was definitely had a very steep trajectory trajectory that went, was going pretty quickly. But you could still get by. And you know, I worked part time and I was making 15, 16 dollars an hour. This is the mid 90s. Now we're we're having a conversation about fight for 15. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That's the way I made back in the 90s. How are we supposed to let these kids? go to school, pay this ridiculous tuition and, and be able to pay rent and pay off their college debt and, and not work three jobs. It's not, it's not possible. I wanted to ask you specifically about a number you brought up. You said the medium wage in our district is, I think you said 19,000. Well, the per capita incomes in different parts of our district range okay. from 15 to 25 in that okay, range. Okay. So that's per capita income. Um, because I, you know, I wanted to have a conversation about a couple of things related to that, that I think is important that people understand. The when median you're looking at averages. Mm -hmm. The median income is 38 or 37, I believe. All right. So not, that's not really high. When you think about the fact that your average rent is like 2,200 for a studio or something like this, mm -hmm. do the math on that. You cannot make ends meet by, I mean, you're, you're going to be spending 80% of your income after taxes on, on putting a, a roof over your head. You're supposed to pay mm -hmm. for food and all these other things, right? It's, it's just not, do the math, it's not feasible. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to point out something about that. So, you know, you can look at a situation that are two starkly different situations. Like if you were looking at an average of five and five, like it's a 10 and you have five here and five here, you know, the average is five, right? That's mm -hmm. pretty spread out. But what if that same scenario that produced that five was a nine and a one, right? This is severe inequality. And you wouldn't know from looking at that numbers. And I often see these guys monkey around with these things. So you're not, they're not, they're intentionally not presenting the total picture about what the district is, right? Yeah. So I, I'm a little bit bothered by that, number one. Number two, you're correct in the sense that nobody wants to deal with this. And I think part of that is because real estate developer money is very deep. And not only in state California politics, but also our local politics. Mm -hmm. So you look at the housing stock in Los Angeles County, and a big chunk of it is owned by hedge funds. Mm -hmm. They don't, it's not that, you know, people say we don't have enough housing stock. Yeah, we do have enough housing stock. What we don't have enough of is affordable housing. And those are, mm -hmm. you know, two separate things, obviously. Mm -hmm. So at some point, we're going to have to force these guys. But again, because of all the real estate developer money that, the, uh, that everybody's taking in whole hog, Nobody wants to address it. I mean, every time we have a bill or some sort of piece of legislation that tries to address it, it gets defeated squarely. Mm -hmm. And that is also coming from Garcetti's office. Mm -hmm. So um, now I'm concerned, and I'm sure you have the same concern. It, it, we are looking at a massive, massive eviction problem because of COVID-19. Yeah. We've had folks that have not been able to work for months on end. These are service sector employees, so restaurants, uh, you know, things that, things that have been closed down where they lost their jobs and they're not going to get their job back anytime soon, right? Yeah. It's just not going to happen. And the eviction uh, moratorium is over. What happens next is really scary to me because mm -hmm. nobody seems to want to do anything about what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's very, I don't even know what the, the correct word would be, but very discouraging, um, sad, uh, upsetting, disappointing, um, it just infuriating when when a moratorium that's announced to be ending August 14th is then tweeted by the mayor saying, oh, that really sucks. 
um, this could have helped us. And it's like, what do you mean it sucks and this could have helped us? Like, it's your duty and job. Like, you had the grace period and freebie to go ahead and 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 pass the buck to to the California Judicial Council, the Judicial Council, to go ahead and be human and do their part in doing that when it was really your job to do that, but then they did it. But now it's time for you to step up. Like, that's what you're going to tweet. And so it's it's that desperation and that I think that I don't know if it's just this complete disregard and, and inability to see the rest of our people as people, as equal human beings, it's or really if tone deaf in the very least. Tone deaf in the very yeah, in the very least. Um, and just to think, wow, what's going on in your mind when uh, obviously August 14th, when it ends, we have several hundred thousands of people in Los Angeles alone who will be facing eviction. What's going on now? And you think it's unreasonable that we're protesting in front of your house, your yeah. mansion? You think that's unreasonable? Really? Yeah. You think it's unreasonable to protest at our elected officials' residences um, and places? No. And it was it was very, I was, I was even more sad um, when we were protesting at Mary Garcetti's house, I think it was a week and a half ago. Yeah. And I was, I I had to go somewhere and I was getting ready to leave. And so I, I was driving by the protest and then I saw one of my friends, uh, Richie, get pushed down by a cop. And I was like, what? No, that's not happening. And so then I went and parked and then I went back to the protest. And then by that by the time I had gone back there, there were probably, I don't know, if it, was, it started at 30, then 40, then probably about 50 police cops. Yeah, there were a lot and, there. Yeah, and they were forming a line and then just pushing us out. And 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 if we stood there, they would continue to push us and, and continue to walk their line. And it was just so sad when it was like, are you serious? Like, your people are crying for help right now, and you're using your mob squad to push them out as if we're causing ruckus when we're not. We're just asking for the person that's supposed to be the leader of our city to help us. And so... So that's why it's come to the point where we have our own groups like the People's City Council of LA, where it's right. like now we're trying to take matters in our own hands. Like I bet like the mutual aid networks that, whether it be by Ground Game LA or other organizations that have started during the pandemic, they've probably helped provide more relief than a lot yeah. of our local government officials have. And it's, it's this sense of like, if, if since the people are already taking care of ourselves, now it's time for us to now run for office and to get elected as well. So with this rent and with this rent and um, eviction that's about to happen, it's it's in the sense of it's to the point where if you're our elected official, you should be doing all that you can, um, whether it be even protesting. If you keep on pointing your fingers at Mitch McConnell, then go protest at Mitch McConnell's house. Like where? Where is that desperacy? And I hate the fact that they're always just passing the buck and it's like, oh, it's the Senate or whatever. Responsible in some regard and to think that the House, the House has the freaking much. And I, I mean, I'm giving the Democratic Party too much when I say the House has the majority of Democrats and why are they giving away their power? But that's also that's assuming they that. they always do. They have a history of doing that, right? Yeah, that's their history of doing it. But that's also assuming that if they... Uh, we're not to give up their power like what what else would they do are they really for the people but 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 even in that it's just like what are you doing like you're just giving away your power all the time and you're you're saying you're fighting for the people but it's not happening and so 
when in two days, like there will probably be many more protests this weekend. And so if you're listening and you don't live in LA, then go to, go to one in your city and town because that's how we support and stand up for each other. Get connected with your tenants unions, go do a stand in where somebody's getting evicted because this is where we really need to stand up for each other. And if that means the government policing us more and doing more violence, then that's on them, but we can't stop helping each other. And so um, it's going to be, it's gonna be it's gonna be crazy and and what what is that dumb rule of of, of paying of paying your rent within a year after, and catching that up like how in the world when forty percent of businesses no, are going to be gone like this is so stupid yeah I mean here's the other part of that equation so even if they so you put a moratorium on evictions right well the bill doesn't go away so if you haven't paid your rent in four months now the landlord's saying to you I need all four months rent today, right now, or you're getting evicted. How is that supposed to happen when somebody hasn't been working for four months? None of it makes exactly. sense. This is where UBI would actually be really helpful as well. Yeah, um, exactly. So I know again, that at Garcetti House, I actually was leaving the protest and accidentally came around a corner it, running into some folks that were coming into the protest. Like there, I think there had been some groups that split off. And the police ended up showing up like two seconds later and they started arresting people. I was like, here we go. I'm just going to video this. But, you know, they were lining them up and cuffing them. You know, I just, none of this, I just, I'm so frustrated because none of this is helpful. And if Eric Garcetti had any semblance of wanting to keep his job, he would be listening to his constituents instead of doing what he's doing, right? You know, and I had, um, I said to one of the police officers, like, have you been, I don't know if you've been down to the Black Unity encampment that's in front of City Hall. Mm -hmm. um, I was there covering another protest, and, you know, they literally tossed this one protester over this barricade. It was very violent and very unnecessary, and I mm -hmm. was like, wow. So I confronted the police officer. I said, why was that necessary? That was incredibly violent. Why are you guys so violent all the time? Mm -hmm. And you know what he said to me? Mm -hmm. this, this is like I'm still like, Whoa. He actually looked at me and said, did I give you a black eye today? Wow, that's the standard? Oh my gosh. He's like, I looked at the back, I'm like, no, because I'm wearing a press credential, but I'm no doubt that you would want to. Like, that's the problem, buddy. Your attitude right now is the problem. How do you not see it? Yeah. You know? It's, <sighs> and it's, it, it, it upsets me even more when, and then they do the complete opposite. Like, the mayor doesn't want to meet Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. The mayor, um, after doing what he thought was good by defunding the budget by one or two percent, um, he just took back his increase. He didn't really fund anything. He's no, stuck. Yeah, because then he's creating these community programs that the police really should have nothing to deal with because they're not community experts and funding that more. And you're like doing the complete opposite. Like, what is going on in your head? Yeah. What is going on in your head? And like, it just doesn't make sense. And, no. um, and I think sense. I'm hoping the city council intervenes and does something about this. I know that they had sent out a questionnaire to a bunch of voters in the city of LA about uh, directly asking questions about how they felt about the LAPD, whether they felt safe around the LAPD, whether they thought certain aspects of the policing that they're currently engaged in should be moved out of the LAPD into other entities. Like, so I'm hoping that that's a good sign that the city council is actually listening to their constituents and is going to pressure for change. 
Um, I also know that across the street from uh, from City Hall, where that encampment is, they've now put up signs threatening that they're not. It's unlawful to be there past 10 p.m. at night. Listening to the code violations, the whole nine yards, right? So I found out after some investigation that Garcetti controls that Grand Park area in front of City Hall, mm-hmm. and they would need his permission to go in there and remove the encampment. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm wondering at this point. Well, is that what we're waiting for? Because you can't. You can't convince me that Mayor Garcetti doesn't know that those signs were placed up. They might have been even by his instruction, right? Mm-hmm. So is, mm-hmm. what's he waiting for? When is that order going to come down? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen with him. Um, and and I think at this point, too, just with city council, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you see certain players just on city council stepping up for things where it's like, oh, you're now speaking about this now? when you could have stopped it way before, oh, you're running for re-election. Okay, well, right. I guess I guess we like that, but I, but you're not really truthful because you'll probably change your stance later anyway. And there's just so much deceit and like so much distrust, so much loss of trust in our government and elected officials. And so I get it when, when we're phone calling and phone banking, like I get it when people hang up the phone as soon as you say, I am so-and-so candidate. They just hang up the phone and I get it like and no personal offense taken, but it's because our corrupt politicians have created it to a point where why does it matter for me to pay attention when it's the same old, same old, when it doesn't really matter for me. And so it's, it's really a time for us to, to really give hope back to our, 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 our peoples and our communities. But the really only way to do that is to really break clean and free from all of those ties with money, yeah, with yeah. corporate interests, with the military industrial complex, with private prisons. Like we need to do a complete break. We can't yeah. have we can't have this compromise of conflicts of interest continue to go on. Like we can't continue uh, relying on our people for for labor and the economy and then squeeze and pushing them out when it comes to the profits and, and taking that from our people. Like we can't be doing that anymore and it's not sustainable. So so it's it's really desperate times where we do need to act up and if if we won't do I don't I mean I, we'll probably be talking later about about how this eviction moratorium um, ending in two days will turn out, but I'm I'm very frightened and scared. I'm frightened too. I'm very yeah. frightened because this is a wave of I I don't even know when I saw the number it was some astronomical wave that was potentially coming down the pike, and mm-hmm. I'm you know I'm more of a, a human based sort of belief person. So I care, my motivation for caring about this is, is the human needs. Like that's what I care about. I don't care about the money. But at the same time, these people that are in their ivory towers, they should be a little bit concerned about this because this could inevitably lead to some sort of socioeconomic based crime wave. Like why aren't they worried about that, right? If, if you are part of this have or the have some want a little more group and you're doing well, you should be at least in the very least, if you're going to be a complete lack of empathy or whatever, you should at the very least be concerned about the fact that all of this income equality, this growing houselessness, homelessness could lead to, the, to crime. Like, and then the worst part of that is now you're going to have a massive crackdown from the Gestapo in response. And that's just going to make the case even more as to why we need police reform. Like none of this is, this is also scary to me. I like, I see this wave coming and it's like, mm-hmm. wow, nobody's doing anything about this. Yeah. And it's, and their way to address it instead of 
caring for the people is just policing them more. And it's like, what? That's 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 going that's going to aggravate things and make things worse. It's and disgusting. It's, They're criminalizing poverty. I guess that's I guess what I'm trying to get at. They are, they are absolutely have no problem criminalizing poverty, and it's poverty that is by design. It doesn't have to be this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, and it's been like that for years, and it's just now us kind of being able to formulate and being able to take more courage and stepping up and saying it. So No, that's true. I mean, we all have our, our ways of becoming more woke to the problems, but once you've reached that point, there's really no going back to sleep. No, no going back. No. There is no going back because you no. see it clearly, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I saw some video of you working with Mel um, from Shower of Hope, which is a great nonprofit that has these shower stalls that he brings to homeless encampments. So I'm here on the corner of Hollywood and Vine at the night before the uh, primary vote tomorrow here in California. And there's a pro-Bernie rally out here. Folks are gathering. There's going to be a Marion Williamson fundraiser for Bernie down the street a little bit later tonight. But I wanted to talk with Mel Taylor Karatna because he runs a nonprofit called Showers for Hope here in Los Angeles. And you basically take portable showers to homeless areas so that these folks can take a shower, right? Yeah, so we have uh, four mobile shower trailers that we own, and we uh, we use two that belong to the county. So we use them at six different locations in the county of LA, and in a given week, we uh, provide around six six to a thousand, six hundred to a thousand showers. But it's not just showers; it's also providing case management from criminal record expungement, housing case management, to mental health uh, services referrals. Okay, so I didn't realize that. So you're almost using the shower uh, as a way to get folks in to get other help that they need. Exactly. So showers are definitely needed, especially yeah. when, you know, you need it for hygiene and a lot of the people are going through illnesses. But one thing that we noticed was the showers of a good way of creating a what we call a community hub, where there's meals, there's clothing, there's showers, but then... You know, the uh, one thing we tell people is showers by itself is not a solution to homelessness. So what we want to do is use that solution, uh, that, that way of giving people dignity, but using it in a way that propels them to go get the help they need so that they have a path out of homelessness. So when did you start this nonprofit? Uh, just around three years ago. So three years ago, uh, we've seen an, an escalation in homelessness here in LA County in the last three years. I, we already had a homeless problem before that, but it's definitely escalated. Uh, what do you think the main causes of that are? I think it's a multiple number of causes that is um, basically contributing to it. One of the main things right now is affordable a lack of affordable housing. So 71% of the people who are becoming newly homeless are becoming homeless because they just can't afford the rents in LA. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's really important to point out that we have capacity, meaning the, the units are there that are empty, but they're not affordable. And it's not just showers that he provides them with. He provides them with a lot of other services and things. So I was mm -hmm. curious to know what other sorts of community projects you are also involved in. Yeah, so Showers of Hope, uh, we I ended up being introduced to because they had come to our neighborhood council uh, to get support. And so I, I do meet a lot of different community groups that come to our neighborhood council, whether it be Urban Partners or Garrison or CAN. And there are different organizations that help out with, uh, like, for instance, Shower of Hope for those who are 
watching and, and tuning in. Um, it's it's a great organization. They have mobile trucks that go around different parts of the city, uh, different locations at certain times. MacArthur Park, it comes on Friday mornings. And um, basically there's four shower stalls and, and we're able to, the volunteers go in and, and clean the shower stalls and wipe them down before um, each use. And, and when you see, like for me, I started volunteering there because um, I mean, like when you just to think just to think like there's so many days like like where I, I did live in my car and I during that eight nine year hustle there were days that I did live in my car and wasn't able to take showers and I had to go to the gym and when the gym was closed I wouldn't be able to take showers and like the stress of that like nobody understands that and like and 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 um, the ability to just feel clean, because when you feel clean, you feel good. And so when, when these people are taking showers and they're walking out, they're like, oh, I feel good, David. You can go ahead and clean it now. Oh, sorry about the soap suds. And it's like, nah, as long as you're feeling good, I'm good. And like, you hear people's spirits being brightened and like, they're singing in the shower. And like, and so I think it's really, what are some ways that we can really help each other out in, in some tangible remote ways where we can do that? What are some ways where, we can provide relief for our people and also provide a network for people to tap into. And so when we saw the pandemic start with, um, with uh, mutual aid networks by Ground Game LA and, and food banks by Urban Partners, that's where you all start to see things happening. And so we also participated in food distribution relief drops. We also uh, did a spotlight on businesses that were immediately impacted by COVID-19 because a lot of these restaurants lost 80 to 90% in sales. Mm -hmm. There are restaurants in my area that have been operating 40 plus years and now they've shut down completely. Um, and so given that these are these restaurants these local family owned businesses are what make up the lifeline of our communities so if they shut down what happens next oh the bigger conglomerate corporate chains come in and that becomes our community um, yeah. under that guise and it's like no what are we doing like we're completely in a in a war against poverty right now during this pandemic and that shouldn't be what's happening right now and it's like i feel like it's some sort of purge of of those those who are struggling and to make them struggle even more and it and it sounds so horrible but that seems like what it, the reality is and so yeah, yeah. we focused on putting a spotlight on those restaurants and um, we've encouraged viewers to call in and to donate meals as well and so for each episode we then go out and um, distribute those meals to our unhoused brothers and sisters and then in addition to other mask mask relief drops because there's uh, different groups that needed masks and so we would try to connect with different orgs and, and do that. Um, and then where there be also providing rent relief resources on how to go uh, get rent or where to apply for free grant money. Um, because there are places where you can apply for free grant, but it's, it's a matter of um, kind of gathering all the resources and being able to tell them which resources to go to. And so over the pandemic, as soon as the pandemic started, we didn't have campaigning. We just focused primarily on, hey, let's get out the resources and information to people in our community as fast as possible. This is what you need to do for, for getting PPP. This is what you need to do for ensuring that you're an independent contractor and a freelancer. Like, don't give up. It's because the California Unemployment uh, Division, EDD, didn't update their site yet. And so it's just kind of, there's a lot of misinformation that goes on with the government and the federal, state, and local where if they had coordinated better, then the people wouldn't be as confused. The people wouldn't be so left behind, feel like they're left behind. And so 
I think for all of us, what we need to do, even if being elected to office, like you still need to be engaged with your community. You still need to hold constituent office hours. You still need to hold regular town hall meetings, not just during the couple months right before your election, not just once a year or once a semi-annual, like you're some you're doing some semi-annual report. No, a representative is you actively co-governing with the people and talking with them. So it's not just talking with them and seeing what their needs and concerns are. It's also going out there and being with them um, on the ground and, and helping them. And so we've, um, we've done, I feel like in addition to being a campaign, we've also been um, just a, a relief resource as well during these times. And so, um, and that's what it's really about. It's about elected officials being plugged into their communities and representing their community's interests. No, I agree. That's, that's part and parcel. That's the point is you're supposed to be representing your constituents. And I noticed that you were having a weekly or bi-weekly call-in where people can, if they live in the district, talk to you. And you're not even elected yet. And I think that's wonderful. And I got to say, that's, that's one thing I noticed about Jimmy Gomez is he doesn't engage with his constituency at all. I remember last election cycle, our Revolution LA had sponsored um, a, debate, a debate for him and Ken showed up and Jimmy did not. So there's, that's but one example. I was covering some of the protests in front of Jimmy Gomez's house the last couple of weeks. Did he bother to come out and address his constituents? No. no. So no. these are opportunities where he could engage with the people that put him in office and he's choosing not to. And I think that's a very bad look. Yeah, and especially when you're also doing a town hall meeting, you announce it the day before the day of, and then you direct them to your website, you go to the website, and it says, go to the Facebook page, and then you go to the Facebook page, and then it says, go to some other site, and then you, when you finally get there, it says, register here, and we'll send you an email, but it's already like four hours before the scheduled town hall, wow. and then you, you never end up getting the link, so it's like, who in the world are attending these town halls? Literally so, no one. So, so, so yeah, probably, I guess. Um, that's crazy. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the time you spent in the Los Angeles district attorney's office when you, so you were there when you graduated, this was under Steve Cooley, who was our DA prior to Jackie Lacey, who was our current DA. Uh, uh, my understanding is that you worked in the public integrity division, which is the division that investigates uh, crime with elected officials. So this would be generally financial issues. Um, what are some of the most egregious things that you saw while you were there? Yeah, um, so I worked in the Public Integrity Division, like what you just said. Um, the head of our division was Jennifer Snyder, and then the other deputy DAs, and I was a post-bar clerk, um, and the other deputy DAs I worked with were Sandy Ross and Sean Hassett, and they, they are all... Uh, they were all kind of experts in their own in the public integrity division and I helped prepare evidence and assemble cases and um, one of the cases that I do remember is um, and there were there were so many from school district officials to state officials to whether it be with uh, with para issues related to tax because because once you discover one thing then it leads to a trail of something else and so <laughs> so so yeah, so once, yeah, so exactly. So once we've heard of like tax fraud, then it's like, oh, maybe we should look into other things that the, that the person is doing with maybe taxpayer money as well. And so one of the cases that I do remember that took up a lot of my time was uh, working on this case against Robert Rizzo, who was the ex-manager of Bell. He was embezzling hundreds and thousands of dollars. He was paying his daughter who I believe um, she didn't graduate from high school yet. She was being paid a six-digit salary, and um, and it's like, what what are her qualifications for getting that? And so, I remember just 
going through the evidence and just thinking, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I'm in this. Because that was the only reason why I went, to be honest, um, because I had no interest working there. But I had a friend who had talked about the public integrity division and how they're cracking down on public officials. And for me, I'm always like about getting the bad guy and like just really stamping out corruption because there's really no need for it to be there in any organization or country or community. Um, so that's why I went and um, uh, and I'm glad I'm no longer there, especially with Jackie Lacey being there um, because she hasn't prosecuted as she could have. She's, <laughs> <so many, laughs> she's, she's let that we'll talk about Jackie Lacey in a second. Okay. But, but yeah, so so, so yeah, so that was my time at the DA's office. And um, it was interesting, though, because um, I, and I, I, it was interesting because, and that was a very, it was fall of 2010 that I was there. And um, so that was, that was my scope. But it was interesting because last, uh, last weekend, I saw somebody get very triggered uh, that a certain podcaster had given me an interview and this person that was triggered was from Stonewall Democrats oh. and, and was very infuriated that, uh, that uh, their endorsed candidate's opponent was being given interview time. And one of the things Proud that... will find a fascist every time. They hate democracy. Yeah, and, and so it was like, who are you calling a corporate corporate Democrat or corporate official? And, and I saw some supporters post all of the screenshots of all of the money that Jimmy's been taking and private prison money or whatever. Um, but but because, there was, because the person couldn't come back to that, the person then started saying, oh, well, David's a, a, a corporate, a, a former prosecutor slash corporate person that's guising as a progressive. <laughs> and claiming he's the savior. And it's like, what, where did that come from? Like, do you even, do you even know what I did at the DA's office? No, I was not a prosecutor. I was a post bar clerk that actually helped on cases against corrupt public officials. I actually worked eight to nine years doing a two to three job daily grind and hustle being, being an attorney for free at certain startups because there was no money in it. And and then helping people and, and trying to make my own ends meet. Like, where are you getting this info? So it's like, when you can't talk and argue the merits and the points, then you go to some unbased, unfounded smear. And so I just thought that was very funny. Uh, when, when I, I just don't understand why they have a problem with any podcaster speaking to you. That's absolutely absurd. This idea that none of the incumbent Democrats should be challenged is just ridiculous. Democracy should be upheld at all levels all of the time. And if Jimmy Gomez is such a great candidate, it won't matter. But exactly. To try to, to try to shut down the entire process is just, ugh, <sighs> makes my hair stand on edge. It's, and I see people uh, from liberals a lot, and I said, why are you doing that? No, that's not how this works. And yeah. here's the other thing. Why do they believe that, that votes don't have to be earned? It's like they have this attitude that whatever the Democratic Party incumbent is, they're just entitled to that vote. Like they're just entitled to it for no reason at all. Like I don't understand this mentality. It's really detrimental. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, this it's very detrimental. It's, and it's, I don't know why it's, uh, I just, I don't have any more words to say on the frustration yeah, of, on the frustration of the no. continued support of the establishment corporate Dems or whatever corporate 
establishment there is, but I just I just don't see it. And it's like, yeah, how in the world are you still These supporting? Folks aren't so, woke. They just they're not aware. They're just not. Yeah. It's tragic. Yeah. Uh, they think all of their enemies are in the GOP, and which is just not the case. The platonomy transcends both parties. That's just a fact of the matter. So yes. want to really fix things? Yeah, at some point you're gonna have to clean house inside the Democratic Party. If that's yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, let's that's talk mean. about Miss Jackie Lacey for a second because she's been an absolutely horrifying district attorney for the city of LA and on so many levels. Um, the one thing that I always go back to with her that, that still blows my mind is when she was confronted by Black Lives Matter Los Angeles about not prosecuting the police officer that shot and killed a man in Venice. Mm-hmm. That that here's the here's the catcher that even. Charlie Beck, you, you have the guy running the show at the LAPD telling you that he should be prosecuted and you still refuse to. Mm-hmm. What's going on here? I've watched so many, I've tried to watch so many interviews and, and clips that I could have heard just to analyze what she's saying. But she's such a good politician in the sense of she doesn't even answer the question that's asked of her. And she diverts it to a me situation where she talks about herself also experiencing these things and how she can connect. But again, that's just all lip service again, because if you can connect with it, then we should see some action resulting. And because lip service is always just lip service if we don't see action. And so I I honestly don't know what's going on uh, with her, with with, um, I mean, I, I was reading, a, um, and this is something that I wasn't aware of, of her husband pulling a gun on on people that had showed up at their residence. Oh, yeah, they, on protesters a couple weeks ago, he actually pulled a gun on them. I, you know, yeah. part of the criticism, David, and I'd be curious to know, what, given your experience, what you think of this, part of the criticism, mm-hmm. criticism has been that the district attorney's office is, is too in bed with the Los Angeles Police Department. It is. Because the attorneys are obviously working with the police who are bringing in the criminals when they go to prosecute a case, and that there's just this um, tendency to not want to pros- to n- want to do anything about holding their own accountable sort of a thing. Would mm-hmm. you agree with that? Yes, I would definitely agree um, with that. And and that's something that um, our new, or not not our new, the the new. Um, <laughs> Sorry, it just didn't feel right because I, I'm still processing the announcement. But it's like the new VP Democratic nominee, Kamala Harris, where it's like oh, you, you see her being so, so for the police and like wearing police uniforms herself and like... Yeah, and, and, calling and herself top cop. Ca- calling herself top cop, yes. And so it's like that. And I think it's not just an LA thing, but it's also very systemic as well. Where it's, it's, I mean, yeah, Jackie Lacey is a horrible person elected official anyway. Um, but I think it's something that also we need to be aware of in terms of what do we mean by police reform? What do we mean by local government reform in that? What does that look like? And, and so when we see and identify issues like this, that's where we need to really start talking about. And um, I was horrified, to be honest, when, um, and I bet, and I bet, um, I'm not horrified, but I was still surprised uh, because I kind of expected it when when I, I saw a video of Kamala um, talking about how she was against defund the police movement and how um, it's not something that's practical. And, 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 and when I saw that, my, my heart dropped and I was like, yeah, I bet that's what you're thinking. That's obviously what Jackie Lacey's thinking. That's what. And so it's, it's, it's in the sense of 
yeah. we're trying to push for change and if our government officials don't aren't listening and don't want to push for that change then yeah there's the whole voting out part but I don't know how long you're going to keep this up because we might not just stick to voting. We might stick to other things as well. Well, where do you go next? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so. it's pretty remarkable. I think the Kamala Harris, I, I think her being nominated as the VP feels to me like a giant fuck you to Black Lives Matter. It really does on so many mm -hmm. levels because she is, she is somebody that has fought reform. She's, she's, she is ingrained as a cop. And what kills me, this is somebody that locked up poor mothers for truancy like she went after mm -hmm. his mother she put him in jail this is not hyperbola yet she let steve mnuchin walk who is our current treasury secretary mm -hmm. who is a complete douchebag mm -hmm. who was committing fraud right robo signing people out of their homes like because you know that's who he is and now he's trump's treasury secretary treasury secretary like mm -hmm. If this doesn't, and, you know, Trump donated to her campaign when she was running for office. If mm -hmm. this doesn't allow people to see that the platonic. Oh, I, oh, I wasn't aware of that one. I don't know what is, you know. Oh. Come on, guys, wake up. Yeah. Oh, I wasn't aware of that one of Trump donating to Kamala. I had no oh, idea. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. it's like you see these you see these photos of Trump with Bill Clinton you, and, and Hillary Clinton. You see them with, you know, right. it's because okay. they're all part of the same club. They are. They you know, um, I think Nancy Pelosi is another prime example. If you look at the data from that particular di district, it's very stark. The median income there is like 130, 140,000. It's a very wealthy neighborhood. Several billionaires live there. There's a reason that Nancy keeps winning re-election there, and it's, and it's this reason. Mm -hmm. the, the, the demographics of that gerrymandered mm -hmm. district are so wealthy Mm -hmm. And it's going to be really difficult for any progressive to, to take her on. And unfortunately, it's necessary because she is in command of the House, right? This is a, it's, it's not that she's important just because she's from San Francisco and she's a congressperson. It's because she has control. She has the reins of power. Yeah. She's one of the handful that controls the House. Yeah. yeah. And, so and, and, and in Congress. So no, it's a problem. Sure. It's a problem. And what other parts of your platform um, do you want to discuss that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, well, for us, it's really um, just check out our website, davidkim2020.com. It's really about just addressing three main areas. The first being the financial distress of our people in our communities right now. Um, if we're a government that's of the people, for the people, by the people, we should ensure that everyone doesn't have to worry about having access to, to health care, education, to good food, to uh, housing with a room and a roof, to pay basic expenses. And so that's why we have UBI, Medicare for All, Green New, Green New Deal, Homes Care, but then in order to do all of that, we need to really take money out of politics and, and really bring that focus on. So we're advocating for democracy dollars, ranked choice voting. Um, that's the first part. For the second is our communities are being oppressed domestically, foreign, with um, the defund the police movement. Uh, there needs to be something greater than just new officer trainings or or whatever BS type of police reform measure that has been talked about for years. Like we need an actual overhaul of that. We need an overhaul of our criminal justice system, of our private prisons. We need to abolish private prisons. Um, we need to do reform with our immigration. We need to start talking about granting amnesty to those who are working as undocumented and who qualify and have no crime history and 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 caring up for them we need to talk about 
the endless war regime change wars that we're doing abroad, like we could actually have enough money to take care of our people if we actually prioritize and made that our that made that our priority. Like yeah. Yeah. people always say, where are you gonna get the money? It's like, the oh my gosh, is a great place to start. Yeah, when you're frivolously spending it here and there, of course, like you're gonna say that. It's like giving a giving like my nephew, six-year-old nephew, a hundred dollars and saying, save a dollar for your uncle, buy, buy your uncle David a stick of gum. And he comes back and says, I don't have any money. And it's like, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> of course you can say that after you spend it all. So right, I think right. it's also this brainwashing that the American people have gone under where it's like even people in our own community, because it's such a, a soundbite that goes out in our corporate controlled media, um, where it goes, where do we have the money? Where do we have the money? It's like, we need to start questioning these questions and, and sound bites that are that are being aimed towards us as well. So, very serious. I agree. So, and also, if folks want to donate to your campaign, David, where's the best place for them to do that at? So they can just go to davidkim2020.com. There's a donate button right at top. Um, you can go ahead and donate. Um, we have about 83 days left to the election. Uh, we really do feel we have a strong chance. Um, otherwise, like we wouldn't be doing what we're doing and, and now it's time to really show um, LA that that we do uh, care about our people our communities and really elect somebody to Congress who can shine a spotlight on the local corrupt politics who can shine a light on the lack of affordable housing um, and and really do that so so go to davidcam2020.com you can donate you can sign up to volunteer to phone bank or text um, as well and then get in tune with the campaign great thanks for coming on great thank you so much for having me